This is Better Edge, a Northwestern medicine podcast for physicians. This episode is part of a Better Edge mini series. Welcome to Parts and Labor, a roundtable discussion with the OBGYN experts here at Northwestern Medicine. My name is Angela Chaudhary, and I'm a minimally invasive gynecologic surgeon here at Northwestern Medicine. I have the opportunity to serve as the Chief of Gynecology and Gynecologic Surgery, but today I will be your host discussing a very common disease, uterine fibroids, that impact so many people's lives. Our panel today are my very own and very esteemed gynecologic surgical colleagues. First off, Dr. Magni Malad the Albert B. Gerby Professor of Obstetrics and Gynecology and the Division Chief of Minimally Invasive Gynecologic Surgery here at Northwestern Medicine. He also serves as the Medical Director of the Center for Complex Gynecology. He is board certified in reproductive endocrinology and infertility with a focus practice designation in Minimally Invasive Gynecologic Surgery, or MIGS. Next, up, Dr. Susan Tsai, a board-certified and fellowship-trained gynecologic surgeon, associate professor, and the associate program director of our fellowship in MIGS here at Northwestern. And last but certainly not least, Dr. Linda Yang, a fellowship-trained minimally invasive surgeon, associate professor, and assistant program director of our fellowship in MIGS here at Northwestern. Now, this topic is very dear to my heart, and I know to all of my panelists as well, because we have the opportunity to discuss a disease that afflicts so many of our patients every day. So I'd love to start with Dr. Yang. How common are uterine fibroids? Well, I'll first start by saying that uterine fibroids are extremely common, and I think that often the patients that we see um, are very scared and nervous because they feel like they're the only patients who are affected by such a common condition. So I feel like it's important to share with them um, facts about uterine fibroids, including how common they actually are. The numbers vary. However, we think that um, certainly over 50% of women over their lifetime may have uterine fibroids. So 50% of women. And, you know, my understanding is it's even greater for our African-American population. Is that true? How common are fibroids in the African-American population? So we think that um, due to various factors, but certainly um, in terms of race and ethnicity, that certain populations are affected uh, more greatly. So upwards of up to 80%, I believe, um, are affected. The next question I'm certain our listeners want to know is, really, why are fibroids so common? What causes fibroids? Dr. Malad, as our reproductive endocrinologist, can you share some of the background of uterine fibroids? Well... Fibroids are, as you mentioned, extremely common and uh, in reproductive age women. So we know that reproductive hormones must play a role in it, whether it's estrogen or progesterone. You almost never see fibroids in girls under menarche, and it's unheard of, almost unheard of to see fibroids after menopause, and we don't see them in men. But there's obviously other factors that may play a role in it, uh, maybe environmental factors and growth factors. Uh, oxidative stress may be associated with it, hypoxia may be associated with it. Um, So it's not absolutely clear that uh, although there does seem to be a common denominator associated with uh, DNA methylation profile and uh, how that may precipitate smooth muscle proliferation into this monoclonal tumor. So it sounds like an excess of tissue growth overall is what we're talking about that's really very hormonally mediated, estrogen and progesterone. And, you know, we're not going to get in too much into the treatment, but 
what does that mean for women who are trying to get pregnant? Will their fibroids grow? Will they cause problems? Well, I think that's a very complex question to ask, actually, because uh, you'd think, right, you'd think that uh, if estrogen and progesterone are the central mediators of alone of fibroid growth, you'd see significant growth during pregnancy, and yet that hasn't really been well documented. Uh, you'd, you'd think that if estrogen and progesterone were the sole factor of causing fibroids to grow, that uh, women that were on birth control pills would be at higher risk, and they don't seem to be. Similarly for IUDs, uh, there's actually a modest reduction in fibroids in some papers associated with a progesterone IUD. So I don't know if there's really like a obvious answer to that question. All we know is that not only is estrogen and progesterone related, but there are many other factors that are related to fibroids. Yeah. You know, I think what our, our listeners probably want to hear is, what are the symptoms of uterine fibroids? How can they go about diagnosing them? Dr. Sai, can you share with us, because I know you take care of so many fibroid patients, what are the most common symptoms that we see? A lot of the symptoms related to fibroids can be um, bleeding, so abnormal bleeding, bleeding between cycles, bleeding after intercourse, but uh, they can have bulk symptoms, which are like pressure symptoms, pressure, heaviness, discomfort, difficulty with urination, incomplete emptying, and potentially painful intercourse. Um, symptoms really vary depending on the location of fibroids. Um, fibroids that are close and impacting the endometrium might cause more bleeding issues. Fibroids that are closer to the surface might cause more of those pressure, heaviness, discomfort symptoms. Additionally, fibroids also can impact fertility, um, depending also on location. The ones that impact fertility the most seem to be the ones that are, are part of the endometrium where the period is coming from, and that may result in difficulty with implantation or implantation in the wrong spot that might result in miscarriage. You know, fertility is such an important question for patients. And, you know, I feel like historically, when we were training and in medical school, we thought about fibroids as a disease of women in their mid to late 40s. It was something where it caused abnormal bleeding as we got closer to menopause. Dr. Malad, as a fertility expert, can you talk about what you really think the impact of fibroids are on women's fertility? Certainly, the location of the fibroids has a significant impact on uh, whether there's going to be a fertility factor or not. And it's estimated that up to 10% of women that are presenting to an infertility practice may have a uterine factor, specifically, typically, uh, fibroids. The larger the fibroid, the more likely the infertility. So a fibroid that's half a centimeter that's in the cavity of the uterus may have less of an impact than a fibroid that's larger than two centimeters, although even polyps have been thought to cause infertility. The Separate from the whole question of mechanical disruption of implantation, there's been a lot of theories about whether the presence of fibroids may change the endometrial environment and its receptivity. Uh, there's a lot of research that's sort of looking into that. Fibroids that are in the wall of the uterus don't seem to have an impact despite um, decades of research looking at this question. So certainly fibers that are less than four centimeters that are in the wall, less likely to cause infertility or be related to infertility. And certainly operating on those types of patients probably does not have to improve their outcome. So do, you, do any of you have an, a patient that you can talk about that really sort of stuck with you, a patient with uterine fibroids who came to you and had some of the worst symptoms you've ever seen? I'd love to hear some of those stories because I think our listeners out in the community who are caring for patients every day, you know, probably hear about, for example, abnormal uterine bleeding or I'm having some pelvic pressure. And so often we just blame that on age or we blame that on you know, uh, the fact that maybe there's changes after pregnancy. And sometimes people don't really recognize what all those symptoms can be. Dr. Yang, do, do you have a patient in mind? 
I actually do. So one of my recent patients reported that she had been over probably a couple of years having, you know, worsening symptoms of um, heavier menstrual periods, um, also um, worsening discomfort in her pelvic regions. And although she had reported these symptoms to her physicians, the sort of uh, treatment plan had consisted of monitoring um, her symptoms and initial imaging. She did have some fibroids that were diagnosed on ultrasound, and I, I think that she uh, subsequently um, uh, developed, you know, worsening symptoms that um, ultimately led to more acute pain episodes, and that's how we kind of met. And so, um, for this particular patient, I think explaining to her that her um, symptoms were likely due to the fibroids um, was reassuring to her because she finally had an explanation in terms of why she was having these um, symptoms that were uh, quite debilitating in nature. Um, once we discussed the findings of her imaging, we you know, sat together, talked through a comprehensive treatment plan, and ultimately she elected to have a fertility sparing surgery um, consisting of a myomectomy to remove the fibroids. And postoperatively, she did wonderfully and um, had excellent symptom resolution. So it sounds like when she was being seen by her primary care physician, she had a lot of complaints for a long time. Would you say that ultrasound would be the first step that you would recommend for our primary care docs looking to, to diagnose fibroids? Pelvic ultrasound is definitely the uh, first line imaging modality that is recommended for evaluation of patients um, of reproductive age um, who present with um, abnormal menstrual uh, symptoms or pelvic pain symptoms. What about pelvic exams? I mean, that's what we all learned in medical school, right? You start with a pelvic exam. Does that work? What do you think, Dr. Sai? I still think it does, and I think there's some merit to doing a pelvic exam. Oftentimes, people do get diagnosed, not necessarily per se 100% for fibroids, but they go to see their gynecologist for the routine annual exam, and lo and behold, oh, something feels different, right? Something feels larger. And so that can be our first line to say, we need to take a better look at this, and that's where ultrasound can help us. Whether or not that's going to be a fiber or some other pathology, um, that's what we need to figure out. So a pelvic exam, I think, is a great start, and then imaging after that. And so pelvic exam, if patients are having pressure symptoms or bleeding symptoms, any other tests that you guys really recommend that our primary care doctors do? Dr. Milan? Certainly. In patients that have fibroids that are larger than, let's say, 12-week size or 14-week size, ultrasound oftentimes can be um, inaccurate because it just doesn't have the focal depth to be able to identify and locate uh, and measure fibroids. So Commonly in our practice at the Center for Complex Gynecology, MRI is uh, of central importance because not only does MRI tell you the number of fibroids, the location of the fibroids, the size of the fibroids, but also it tells you some information about whether they're degenerating or not. And it also can give you information about the presence of adenomyosis or adenomyomas, which ultrasound isn't quite as sensitive to, uh, and also the presence of endometriosis, which uh, has symptoms that are very similar to patients that have fibroids with regards to pelvic pain. MRI sounds like a great modality. Would you recommend that our primary care doctors, our gynecologists, jump straight to MRI? No, I think patients, if they have symptoms associated with fibroids and are suspected to have fibroids, would undergo an ultrasound first um, and maybe use MRI as a role in better understanding fibroids in a specialty setting.
Yeah, I, I love that idea of let's start with, you know, blood counts and, and uh, ultrasound imaging, but also letting patients know that sometimes there is a need for more imaging, that we need more information to really treat the problem as a whole. As we start thinking more about this, we think about this patient that Dr. Yang brought up, uh, a patient who really suffered from bleeding uh, for a long time. I'd love to hear everyone's thoughts about how you really think this is impacting, you know, our individual patients and, and women in society as a whole. Dr. Sai? You know, many women undergo um, pain and suffering um, from their fibroids, and as a result, their quality of life, not only at home or potentially at work, are completely affected. Um, it's not something that they often want to talk about, and so we as physicians really need to ask these questions to determine whether or not their their pain or their bleeding is really affecting their lives. And from there, delve into what potentially is causing those issues. It's just not something that's commonly discussed, and we really need to pull that information out from the patients. Dr. Yang? I would like to also um, echo those same thoughts as Dr. Sai. Um, I think that the impact from a well-being point of view, but also physical and certainly financial um, point of view in terms of the financial burden that results from women who suffer from fibroid symptoms is immense um, related to inability to work or to um, provide care for their family. Um, so when patients come to us, I think it's um, our duty and responsibility to really address all the, not only the fibroid symptoms, but how it may impact their lives. When I ask patients about their symptoms, I often ask them, you know, how much they bleed, how often they bleed. I hear so much from patients, and, and, and it's amazing to me that women have to go to work and experience this, how they would have a heavy cycle and have an accident at work, and they're in their place of work and need to rush to the bathroom, and how embarrassing that is. And I think that probably plays into this whole idea that Women just don't speak about what's going on. They hide it. And so, you know, part of part of the discussion today that I really wanted to get out there was this is so impactful to our patients. And so many times they're too embarrassed to share with us what all those symptoms are. And, you know, we as surgeons can obviously help them from a treatment standpoint. But it's really our colleagues out in the community that can really help address this and begin to start treating them prior to them ever reaching us. As we talk about these patients, I can think of so many patients in my head who really, you know, we offer obviously treatment options, but who come to me and talk about sort of how they've suffered with these fibroids for so long. Uh, Dr. Mallette, do you, do you have a patient like that? Well, certainly uh, over the past decades uh, being at Northwestern, I've had just many patients that have come in suffering, whether it's suffering from bulk symptoms, whether it's suffering from bleeding to the point where they're anemic and requiring transfusion every month uh, on their menses, or whether it's infertility. I think a really good example of patients that uh, suffer is a patient who actually is um, coming in in the next um, few weeks. This patient was noted to have fibroids. It was being monitored and the fibroid uh, rapidly grew. And she was told by her doctor that this is likely to be cancer. Um, and it's just important to remember that rapid growth is not a risk factor for leiomyosarcoma. Um, and I told her that, and we'll be operating on her next week. But she's been just completely consumed by this idea that she may have cancer, despite the fact that fibroids virtually always are non-cancerous, except for those sort of rare cases. 
I think that is such a great point. I think when people hear tumor, right, fibroids are called benign tumors. But when patients hear tumors, they automatically, their head goes straight to cancer. And certainly when we think about fibroids that grow over time, you know, it's imperative that we evaluate those, monitor those, as Dr. Sai mentioned, but also remind our patients that really fibroids are almost always benign. These don't tend to be cancerous conditions. And so when um, women come to us, they're often so scared they're going to need a hysterectomy. They're going to need major surgery. And I think that one of the things to really remind them about is that we're here to be their partners. We're here to be their partners and find the best treatment options we can, such that we can really improve their quality of life, that we can get them back to work, that we can get them not missing things every single day. I mean, one interesting caveat to this topic of rapid growth is that there was an interesting study looking at rapid growth as a preoperative diagnosis. And actually, patients that had the diagnosis of rapid growth were less likely to have Lyomar sarcoma than those patients that didn't have rapid growth. Such an interesting study that is very reassuring. As we wrap up this discussion, I'd wonder if, Dr. Malad, if you'd share sort of the one thing you want our referring physicians, our primary care physicians and general OBGYNs in the community to really take from our discussion today. I think it was well said uh, earlier, fibroids are extraordinarily common. Um, symptoms of fibroids include uh, bulk symptoms, bleeding, and infertility. Uh, if a patient seems to have those symptoms uh, based on history, I think having a th- low threshold to do an exam, get an ultrasound um, is really important and get that patient referred in to somebody that can manage that patient, um, not just individually, but potentially in a collaborative fashion with other providers. Wonderful. Dr. Sai, Dr. Yang, anything to add? I think that also just acknowledging that their symptoms are um, impactful um, is a great starting point. And then if the provider has the ability to connect them easily with, you know, a local gynecologist or a specialty gynecologist, um, and then even in that interim, um, if there might be a delay in care, potentially even just to schedule a close follow-up visit to make sure that their symptoms um, are addressed, that they're not lost to follow-up because of delays in scheduling. I think that means a lot to um, the patient who is actively experiencing those symptoms. I think it's important for patients to know that they have fibroids, like Dr. Yang said. Oftentimes, this information isn't conveyed. Um, But for a woman who's of reproductive age, just to be aware of that so potentially their gynecologist can monitor them as they're aging and potentially approaching fertility ages to see, is this growing big enough that potentially in the future might cause issues? Many fibroids don't cause symptoms for anybody. And so just because you have one doesn't necessarily mean you need to be operated on. Well, thank you all for being here today. I think we've really sort of touched on um, all the different impacts that fibroids have, whether it's bleeding or some of the pressure and discomfort that our patients experience. Um, And I really hope uh, to our listeners that you guys have found this really useful uh, to really begin to think about fibroids in um, the primary diagnosis of your patients who come to you with these issues. Thank you so much. To refer your patient or for more information, please visit our website at breakthroughsforphysicians.nm.org/obgyn. 
That concludes this episode of Better Edge, a Northwestern medicine podcast for physicians. Please always remember to subscribe, rate, and review this podcast and all the other Northwestern medicine podcasts. And for updates on the latest medical advancements and breakthroughs, please follow us on your social channels.